When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Audio Judo. I'm Kyle. And I'm Matthew. Welcome to your podcast of music discovery. Proud members of the ever-expanding Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier source of music podcasts and other podcasts as well. For instance, just recently, they launched they launched Basic. It's Ooh. Basic with an exclamation point. A podcast all about the birth of basic cable television way back oh. in the late 70s and early 80s and its influence on culture up until now so uh check that out that seems pretty fascinating i have not heard about this at all i gotta yeah. go check that out that sounds cool also just recently we launched our third podcast uh called yes. through line it talks about concepts within records whether that's musical or lyrical or what uh we're proud of that addition to our lineup and we hope that you check that out you can find that at audio judo oh, wow audio judo.com forward slash through line third beer or fourth for the night third or oh, anywhere okay. that podcasts are podcast uh now if you're interested in getting additional content or some other fun features you should check out our pain <sighs> wow you are doing great over there patreon account patreon account if you want to support the podcast or you really like hearing our voices <laughs> i i feel like i could you have a weirdos. deaf leopard moment for this you could episode, have a depth like, like Kyle This had. is going to be great. This is going to be great. If you want to support the podcast, though, uh, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com forward slash audio judo. Uh, we have two tiers right at the moment. The lower tier is called the front row seats tier. It's $5 a month. And for that, you get early access to episodes. You get them on Wednesday instead of Friday. You also get access to what we call judo chops, which are little mini episodes that are subjects that couldn't quite be expanded out into a full episode. Uh, uh, lots of little fun subjects. We just did uh, one on uh, Paul Buckmaster. Uh, recently, we've done a, a whole bunch of those. Uh, those come out in between weeks uh, uh, for the regular episodes. Uh, you also get a shout out on a future episode and, uh, uh, you know, just some recognition and you help out the podcast. If you want to spend a little bit more money for $20 a month, you can become a backstage pass patron. Uh, at that tier, you get everything that the front row seats tier gets, as well as a personalized uh, a gift signed by Matthew and myself and uh, Randy. And after one year at that patron level, you get to co-host an episode with us about the album of your choice. So you can make us listen to the worst album of all time. I'm sure we have opinions on what that is. I'm going to let you pick what the worst album of all time is. Or, uh, as has happened, thankfully, so far, people have picked good albums. That does only happen once, though, uh, after a year of patronage. So, uh, But uh, both levels of patronage do help out the podcast quite a bit, and we appreciate that a lot. Uh, so, Matthew. Yes? Today. Yeah. 
we were talking about a less known, uh, lesser known musician on a lesser known album that is also incredibly influential on uh, music. Uh, Apparently, that's what I'm being told. Right. We're talking about uh, Harry Nilsson's Nielsen Schmielsen. Which is fun to say, especially if you, after you've had a few beers. So Kyle continues his strange trip through obscurity. Mm-hmm. So we head back to 1971. Mm-hmm. Kyle, I'm guessing this is, uh, you have some sort of personal connection to this I record? I have zero personal connection to this episode. Well, <laughs> to this, all my to notes this are fucking trash now. So here's the deal. What has happened recently is I've been sort of um, researching what albums influenced modern musicians. Okay. And when you start tracking that back... Where this album came from was, uh, and we'll get to it in a little bit more depth, but both um, uh, two of the Beatles said at a, in a press conference that Nielsen was their favorite American musician. Mm-hmm, I can cross that note out. And it's a little bit of a weird, we'll, we'll, we'll cover it in more details later <laughs> on, but uh, it's a little bit of a weird off the wall call out to some musician that nobody had ever really heard of. And because of that, I was like, who the hell is Nielsen? And then I came back and I started researching and I was like, oh, Harry Nielsen. Okay. Yeah. And then I recognized several of his songs. Okay. And I was like, oh, he's one of those people that you think of as a one hit wonder or kind of a gimmicky musician, but he really isn't. He actually has a lot of talent. He surrounds himself with a lot of very, or surrounded himself sure. with a lot of very talented people and uh, uh, released several albums that were very critically acclaimed. Yeah. This one caught me off guard, but- yeah, because at least most of the other ones that you pick, I have some familiarity. Mm-hmm. With. I had never heard of this record in particular and was really only familiar with two songs on it when I was listening to it. So it was an education uh, for me and not necessarily a great one. Yeah. Uh, my knowledge of Harry Nilsson is limited to a few things so that I will uh, wait to address later in this episode. Okay. But we should talk about Harry Nilsson yeah. before we start talking about this record. He was born Harry Edward Nelson. Uh, the third on June 15th, 1941 in Bushwick Hospital in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, his maternal grandparents were the cornerstones of his young life. He was basically raised by them for the first several years of his life. Right. Because uh, his dad abandoned him. Yeah. His grandmother played piano and his grandfather, Charlie Martin, supported the family uh, who lived together in a tiny railroad apartment on Jefferson Avenue in Brooklyn. His father, like you said, Harry Edward Nelson Jr., abandoned the family when Harry was only three years old. Right. So you can imagine that greatly affected the lyrics that Harry would eventually write and probably contribute to his later addiction issues. Oh, absolutely. Go on. I was to say, uh, directly, the songs 1941 and Daddy's Song are written about that abandonment. And there's an underlying theme of that in almost all of his songs. Let's be real here. Almost all of his songs. He grew up with his mother, Bette, and his younger half-sister. He also had a younger brother named Drake, a half-brother and half-sister through his mother, and three half-sisters and a half-brother through his father. So pretty good-sized family. Right. As a teenager, his family moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles to try to escape that cycle of poverty that they were stuck in. And uh, he lived near his uncle in San Bernardino, who helped uh, Harry develop his vocal and musical abilities, basically from a, you know, the teenager into something that could actually be, you know, an instrument. He also helped support his family and started working at a pretty young age. Depending upon the source you read, it's between 12 and 14. Originally, he had a job at the Paramount Theater in Los Angeles doing all kinds of clean up and odd jobs and selling concessions and things like that. While working there, he also formed his first band, which was a vocal duo with his friend Jerry Smith. Uh, they would sing covers of rhythm and blues songs that they uh, in the style of the Everly Brothers. Mm-hmm. 
Nilsson would also later recall that if he forgot the lyrics to a song while performing, he would make up new ones, which is what led him to begin writing his own songs. <laughs> so, right, but because of basically the family, he invented rap. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, he went. So he went to work at an early age, like you said, and developed an affinity for the like burgeoning computer movement yes. of the late 50s and early 60s, yeah. working as a computer specialist for banks during mm -hmm. the nighttime well, and pursuing his life as a singer-songwriter during the day, which is completely polar opposite of what I would think right? he would do. Well, so what actually happened was in 1960, the Paramount Theater closed, uh, and he needed a job to help support his family. He had worked with computers before because he found them fascinating and had an affinity for them. Even though he had dropped out of high school in only ninth grade, he loved computers. And so he basically lied on a job application to a bank and said, yeah, of course I have a high school diploma and I know all about computers and was given a job programming these newfangled computers at this bank in Los Angeles. And they, he was so good at it that even about six or seven months into his job, when the bank found out he didn't actually have a high school diploma, they kept him on board. They were like, well, <laughs> you don't have a high school diploma, but you're so good at programming this computer, we're going to go ahead and keep you on and, and keep paying. Yeah, you've already proved you could do the job. Which so. is a bonkers, like when you look at this from the millennial 2022 standpoint, the idea that you could, first of all, lie on a job application to get a job because they couldn't track anything, tell whether you had or not. And second of all, then when they found out, they're just like, oh yeah, you can keep the job. We love you. Keep programming the computer. Yeah. <laughs> Bonkers to my millennial mind. But uh, anyways, uh, he did. He worked as a he worked at the bank at nights programming the computer. And then during the days, he would write music and sing and and work on his instrumentation. During this time, he was given a plastic ukulele, uh, which sounds like a crap instrument, but he learned to play it. And that led him to learn to play the guitar and the piano as well. At the time, his uncle's singing lessons and his natural talent kind of led him to start uh, considering music as a career. Uh, and he was able to get a job singing demos for songwriter Scott Turner in 1962. He was paid a total of $5 for each track that they recorded, which, you know, big money. What's funny is when uh, Harry Nilsson later became famous, uh, Scott Turner decided to release those early recordings and try to make some money off of them. And he contracted Nilsson to work out a fair payment for them. And Nilsson replied that he had already been paid $5 per track and he felt like that was fair enough. <laughs> so, all right. Fair enough. Uh, in 1963, Nilsson began having some early success as a songwriter, working with John Marscolo on a song for Little Richard. And upon hearing Nilsson sing, Little Richard reportedly remarked, My, you sing pretty good for a white boy. Yep, there you go. Marscolo also financed some independent singles by Nilsson, including one called Baba Black Sheep, which was released under the pseudonym Bo Pete and received some local airplay in Southern California. He also recorded under the name Johnny Niles. Yeah. And then he recorded a few songs with the ever-present, always-around Phil Spector. Of course. In 1964, <laughs> in fact, he started to establish that relationship with Phil Spector to build his musical career, basically. Music producer Perry Botkin Jr. Uh, shopped around some of Nilsson's uh, demos and songs to various record labels, but didn't get any takers at the time. Through Botkin, Harry became friends with George Tipton who believed his music was so good that he was willing to invest $2,500 of his own money to finance the recording of four of Harry's songs his into a demo. entire life savings. Right? $2,500, entire life savings, believed in him that much. But it was under his own name. They dropped the Johnny Niles name. Yes. 
Finally. In 66, he signed with RCA Victor, Mm -hmm. released the album Pandemonium Shadow Show. Which, uh, great name. Which is not a commercial success. No. However, it was a critical success. Yes. All this time, he was still working at the bank at nights. Yeah. Pandemonium Shadow Show uh, found quite a few fans. Most importantly, were the members of the Beatles. And you know how they got a hold of it, right? Yeah, through one of their managers or one of their- Derek uh, Taylor. Yeah. uh, Their press officer bought an entire box. He loved this album so much, he bought an entire box of these albums and sort of just distributed them out to a bunch of people, including members of the Beatles. Mm Mm-hmm. It probably helped, too, that the song You Can't Do That, uh, which appears on Pandemonium's Shadow Show, is a cover of a song written by John Lennon. Harry also worked into the background lyrics of that 17 references to different Beatles songs, which come in through the multi-layered backing vocals. Right. The Beatles have enormous egos, as it were. So play into that certainly didn't hurt. And so the Beatles eventually heard this, and during a press conference in 1968 with uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, who were announcing the formation of the Apple Corp uh, music record label, Mm -hmm. uh, Lennon was asked to name his favorite American artist, and he replied, Nielsen. Mm -hmm. And McCartney was then asked to name his favorite American group, and he replied, Nielsen. Right. This naturally led to an influx of opportunities for Nilsson. Yeah. Chances to perform, to record. There was even talk of trying to get him on the Apple label. Also, it should be pointed out here that Nilsson hated performing live. Mm-hmm. And around this time, had decided that he would prefer to just be a recording studio musician, similar to what the Beatles had done later in their career. Now, remember when I said I only knew a few things about Nilsson? Yes. Well, this is one of them. His name is synonymous with John Lennon and John Lennon's Lost Weekend. Yes. So I've seen tons of documentaries about the Beatles over the years, and they always cover Lennon's period of 18 months from 73 to 74 when he left Yoko Ono for a while, headed to Los Angeles with assistant his assistant, May Pang, uh, and he would become an absolute fucking wreck. Mm-hmm. He's drinking with Nilsson and a number of others, getting into fistfights with waitresses, heckling the Smothers Brothers and getting them kicked out of bars. Uh, they would all eventually rent a house together with Ringo, Keith Moon, and others. This oh my is just God. a fucking train wreck. Yeah. But eventually, they all headed back to New York, and and Lennon got sober for a while. And uh, But Nilsson's name is always there. And I've always been curious, but not curious enough to listen to his music, I suppose. Like, I just, I never quite... Well- Got the connection. I'm like, I was a fucking Nilsson guy, whatever. It's one, He's one of those musicians that very much flew under the radar. He's somebody who's known and who appears in all the myths. You know what I mean? Yeah, he's, myth, he's, like, yeah. he's like a unicorn. He's right, a there's mythical a mythology creature. to him. So his follow-up album mm-hmm. was released in 68. was called Aerial Ballet. Mm-hmm. Sounds like something at a company that we might or may not work for. Right. A reference to his grandfather's vaudeville act. Included on the record was a cover of Everybody's Talkin'. It was a minor hit until it was released again when it was included on the Midnight Cowboy soundtrack. Yeah. Uh, And then it exploded. Right. The release would shoot the song up to number six on the U.S. charts. Number one in Canada would earn Nilsson his first Grammy Award. Uh, And this is the second thing that I knew him for. Everybody knows that song. It's been used in a thousand yeah. movies and TV shows, including Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. There's a great parody of, of it in Seinfeld. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's definitely one of those songs, too, that it immediately speaks to a time and a place. Oh, definitely. It immediately says to me, because of its inclusion in Midnight Cowboy, it immediately says 1970s New York to me. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's so time and place related to that. It's, it's crazy that the second you hear 
hear it, that's what I think about. John Voigt. John Voigt. <laughs> the that's, actor? That song actually charted at number six in the US and number one in Canada. I just said that. Yeah, I know. Oh. But uh, uh, I wanted to repeat it because I felt like it was so important because I was fair reading enough. the line before the one I actually Ah, uh, Fair enough. His next album, just called Harry, was released in 1969. It charted well and had a top 40 single with the song, I Guess the Lord Must Be in New York City, hey. which is a song I had never heard before. And Correct the top 40, though. Yeah, right? I mean, it's not a bad song. Quickly, followed by an album called Nilsson Sings Newman. Yeah, which is all covers of Randy Newman songs. And that album crashed and burns. And you have to admit, that's a weird fucking choice yeah, for a record. Here's the thing. It's because he met Randy Newman doing a song for Harry called Simon Smith and the Amazing Dancing Bear. And he loved Randy Newman. He's like, you are amazing. You're such a good songwriter. I have to, I have to do your work and I have to pull you along with me. That's sweet. And on Nielsen Sings Newman, uh, 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 Randy Newman played the piano behind most of the tracks. It is definitely a interesting album. Sure. Let's go with that word. We'll go with the word interesting. <laughs> like you said, not uh, not successful, but Stereo Review did name it their record of the year. Well, so is that, is that magazine still in print? Stereo Review, uh, long out of date, <laughs> uh, long out of publication. But you know what? 70s were a different time. For a moment, top of the right? charts. So his next thing, which is the the place where I knew Harry Nielsen from originally, but I didn't know this, was an animated movie called The Point! Exclamation mark. He created with animation director Fred Wolf and was broadcast on ABC television on February 2nd, 1971 as an ABC movie of the week. It is a weird animated movie, <laughs> to say the least. It's not um, about angel dust or anything, is it? No, not okay. at all. Is that the one it's definitely Hunt? not drug influenced at all. No, never. It is a very weird animated movie, but it's worth a, a watch. I would say that it kind of falls in the same category as Yellow Submarine. Did you watch the whole thing? I have watched the whole thing multiple times. It's one of my sister's favorite Why? movies. What? Yeah. <laughs> weird, right? What the? F so I've seen it through multiple times from beginning to end. I have to meet her. Right? Sometimes when she curious. comes here, sometime we'll go get a drink. So later in 71, yeah. right, he would head to England to record his next record, mm -hmm. the one we're going to talk about, mm -hmm. Nielsen Schmilson. Kyle, do you have the particulars? I do. So it's his seventh studio album. It was released in November 1971. Uh, it produced three of his best-known songs, Without You, Jump Into the Fire, and Coconut. It earned him a Grammy Award for Album of the Year in 1973. It was also nominated for Best Engineered Album Non-Classical, and that really shows it does sound, it is incredibly it sound smooth. Yeah, it sounds good. And the quiet parts, like for some reason, one of the things that really stands out to me on this album is the quiet parts are very quiet. And I know that. that sounds a little weird, but it really does. It's something that just popped out. To no, me, it's, a, so. it's fair. It's fair. But number three on the US charts? Yeah. Number three, Kyle? Number, number two in Australia. Three. Yeah. This album. This album reached number, number three. three. And Harry Nelson, remember, somebody who did not want to perform live, never toured, did not take this album on tour. It is ranked number 84 on Pitchfork's top 100 albums of the 1970s, uh -huh. ranked 281 on the 2020 version of Rolling Stone's 500 yeah. Greatest Albums. And I find time. issue with that. I really do. I just, I like, I totally understand the hits, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've heard the hits on the album 
uh, one more than the other because of where I frequently travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I find I find very little re- redeeming about some of the other songs on here, and I just don't think they're all that great. And more frustrating than anything else, I feel like he has a very difficult time resolving songs. They just kind of end yeah, they, or fall apart, and it's very aggravating. I will ag- uh, agree with you on that. They just kind of peter out. Peter out, yeah. It's like, where, where were you headed? Oh, I, I really don't know. I feel like... <laughs> I feel like Harry Nilsson was a very good songwriter, and he it's did not, not a song ender. He's not. He's not a good song ender. I was going to say he's a good songwriter for other people who can come in and give their collaborations with him. All right. Um. But all in all, this album is is a I think an ode to late nights and early mornings, and because every song on here has something to do with staying up late or getting up early. Fair enough. Yeah, I see that thread and, there. And it's even the cover. You want to talk about it? Let's go to this. Let's just roll right is, into the cover. It is a picture of Harry Nilsson in a bathrobe standing in a kitchen. In black and white. In black and white. The title Nilsson Schmilson is in the upper left-hand corner. Nilsson in white, Schmilson in yellow. Right. Nilsson, in Nilsson's hand in the photo is what I believe to be a hash pipe, but I guess it could be a regular pipe for tobacco, but uh, I'm going to go with hash pipe. I would agree with you. Um, and you know, the picture was taken by Dean Torrance. Yes. From Jan and Dean. Right. I'm very familiar with Dean Torrance. Uh, half of the surf rock duo, Jan and Dean. Right. Uh, he started his own graphic design firm after the band kind of broke up for a while because of uh, Jan's car accident. Car accident, yeah. It was called Kitty Hawk Graphics, uh, and they designed tons of album covers and logos for bands, including Steve Martin, Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, oh, Dennis yeah. Wilson, Bruce Johnson, The Beach Boys, Diana Ross, and The Supremes, Linda Ronstadt, Canned Heat, The Ventures, and many, many more. Many, He also many won a Grammy for Album Cover of the Year with Gene Brownell in 1971 for the album Pollution, Pollution, yeah, by the band Pollution, yeah. which is a really boring album it's cover. It's a terrible it's like, album that cover. Was your, Thanks, that one Grammys. Grammy. Do you know who A.C. Lehman is? No. Who is credited with the graphics on this? No. A.C.R. Lehman is an absolute legend of an album cover designer. Really? Uh, you remember the cover to the Velvet Underground and Nico? Of course. That bright yellow banana? The banana, yes. It's a drawing by Andy Warhol. A.C. is the guy who made that work as an album cover. All right. All told, he has over 600 album designs to his credit. Holy shit. Uh, he did White Light, White Heat for the Velvet Underground as well. Most of Lou Reed's solo albums. He has been nominated for eight Grammy Awards for cover design and art direction. He won one for the 1972 cover of the album The Siegel Schwal Band, which in my opinion is one of the ugliest album covers I've ever seen in my entire life. If you go look it up, it is horrible looking. Awesome. And it's like, why did this- What's it called again? The Siegel Schwal Band, that is S-I-E-G-E-L dash S-C-H-W-A-L-L band. It's just a, it's a crappy painting. No offense to the person that painted it. It's a crappy painting. And the fact that that won a Grammy for that means that apparently 1972 was a very dry year for album design. That's fucking bad. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, the back of this album yeah. is a picture of an open refrigerator. A well-stocked refrigerator. A well-stocked open refrigerator, which by the way, the second you see this picture- it screams 1970s to me. And I don't know if it's the, I, I I didn't realize it until I was looking at it a little bit more in depth. I don't know if it's because the containers in the fridge 
are very of the era they okay. were taken yeah, yeah. or just the designs or what, but it just immediately says to me, 1970s. All right. Like, even though it's black and white, I can picture it in orange or olive green. Ooh, avocado. Avocado. Or harvest gold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can just picture it. I can just picture it. Fair. It's a it's an understated album cover. I have no problem with the cover, except that my version of it is, like, fairly out of focus. Like, look at it. Yeah, yours Why is, is it very so blurry. out of focus? I don't get it. Um, I don't know. It could be that's, the print. That's interesting. But it bothers me. Hmm. Uh, so, like I said, I knew three things mm-hmm. about Harry Nielsen going in. One was the John Lennon Beatles connection. Another was the Everybody's Talking song from yes. The Night Cowboy. The other is because he wrote the entire soundtrack to one of my very favorite movies as a kid. Ooh. Songs that I used to sing all the time with my mom. He wrote Son of Dracula. He wrote oh, all no. the songs for the 1980 movie Popeye starring mm. Robin Williams. I loved that movie <laughs> as a kid and I still do and the songs are very much a reason for that so while I do not think that the album we are about to cover is great I do have mad respect for the artist <laughs> because the songs from Popeye are part of the soundtrack of my youth I love that fucking I, soundtrack I honestly so avoided much. I avoided because it's beyond this album I didn't even mention Popeye in this. Oh at my all. god, it's but so I've good! But I've known I I love that soundtrack too. Those and songs so... are in my head all the time. Yeah, I could just, like walk around just singing the Sweet Haven song all the time. <laughs> it's such a fun fun album. Yeah, and I had no idea that that was him. And it's such a fun movie too. Yeah, it's very under <laughs> underappreciated. It's very underappreciated from a both from a, like a fun kids movie standpoint, and from an artistic. Well, it's cinematography Robert, and it's Robert Altman. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, it's ro- no slouch. It's Robin Williams and uh, oh, why can't I Shelley Duvall? Shelley Duvall as the leads. Yeah, like, it's so good. Yeah, and that I had no idea that he wrote the songs, but then <laughs> when I listened to the soundtrack and then went back and listened to this album, there's definitely can, musical connections. You can hear the little, especially on. with the first one that we'll get to in the track by track. We're just going to take a break. Yeah, let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do a track by track and uh, see what happens. All right. Got to get up, Matthew. I have a lot of confusing thoughts in my head right now, Kyle. Oh boy, because I'm not entirely sure what I'm li- what I'm hearing. So on the surface, I would say I kind of like the song, but it's mm-hmm. possible that it's just because it sounds so much like the Beatles when it starts. Fair. First of all, it has that tack piano effect yeah. that the Beatles use so effectively and so often, but then it kind of slips back and forth in some sort of honky tonk piano sound, reminiscent of older Elton John and maybe older Billy Joel as well. And it has that music hall feel, and I, I kind of enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like it. Uh, the piano on the track is played by Nilsson. Yes. Clearly a talented musician. Yes. Adding some lovely brass notes, which also kind of harken back a few years earlier with a little album called Sgt. Pepper's, is Jim Price. Uh, he played and toured with the Stones, also played on George Harrison's solo record, All Things Must Pass. And like I've said a million times, the Beatles' sound was kind of hard to avoid at this point in musical history. Kind of no wonder the Beatles liked his sound. He sounded quite a bit like them. Yeah, right? That's kind of the other place that led me to pick this album, because one of the other things that I've been researching a lot recently is the history of the Beatles. Oh, yeah? And so you start to find people like Harriet Nielsen. Yeah. 
and Badfinger, Bad which we're doing an episode coming up on shortly. True. There's this group of people that were all sort of influencing each other as well as taking from one another. Mm-hmm. And I think Harry Nelson was sort of in that group. But because he was not a performing musician, he was a recording musician, he's long since been surpassed. Mm. He's been forgotten and sort of pushed off to the side with the exception of a couple of songs that are, are the hits. Right. So uh, uh, this song is all about waking up in the morning. <laughs> Surprise. Got to get up right. is about waking up. Adulting. In the morning, right. It's about becoming an adult. It's about using the morning as a metaphor for that transition from, well, I was a teenager and I didn't have any responsibilities to becoming an adult where I do have a lot of responsibilities. Uh, And it sounds a little bit like this. So this is a song that was on the the plate for quite a long time because they originally he wrote it for Ariel Ballet and then he kind of tried to shoehorn it into Harry and it never quite fit. And then he made a much more upbeat version of it for this album. Right. Uh, Nielsen's biographer, Alan Shipton, said of the earlier versions, quote, it was a fast paced arrangement with a much cheerier sound to it with emphasis on the tambourine and the brass section. Richard Perry who produced this album, made it a darker song. Alan Shipton says again, quote, less buoyant and atmosphere helped by Chris Spreading's scratch guitar chords at the start, which finally dissolved towards anarchy at the end as the band follows Nielsen's upwardly spiraling piano into chaos. All right. It definitely feels to me like this song should be used in a movie <laughs> as a background to a montage of somebody getting up in the morning. I, I get that until <laughs> until verse two. Mm-hmm. Verse two is not about parting so much as it is about a girl who likes to head down to the docks and take care of the sailors. And it takes a very weird turn it for It does. Me. So all of a sudden, in this jangly, honky-tonk s- s- song, comes the line, she never even knew his name. He'd come to town and he would pound her for a couple of days. <laughs> and then he'd sail across the bubbly waves. And those were happier days. But now- so clearly a wham, bam, uh, thank you, ma'am situation. Yeah. But it's so out of left field in the context of the song. So, man, it was tough getting up for work this morning after that rager. But do you remember the time I banged that chick at the docks and never found <laughs> out who she was? Man, I miss those days. Right. But what kind of fucking conversation well, is this guy having? You know what kind of a, you know where the suggested influence from that is, is that it's his mother and father. Oh, man. There's a suggestion that that is what his who father suggested was, it? Well, There's uh, a couple of different places that I I took references from suggested that the idea behind this song is that his father used to do that before he was born. And then they settled down together because they were having a baby. And then his father got, you know, tired and left when he was only three years old. Now I feel bad. Right. So uh, whether that's true or not, 
it's, I think, open to interpretation, but they did see that interpretation of it in two different locations at least. Okay. Uh, there's also some fun accordion in this song, <laughs> played by Henry Crine, who's a member of the London Studio Players and played as a session musician on many recordings through the 40s and 50s, specifically light music programs broadcasted by the BBC. Ah, uh, the BBC. So something we're going to find here, this is the first mention of session musicians. Uh-huh. This whole album- Beyond Harry Nielsen himself is almost all session musicians. Uh, in fact, I think it's all session musicians. Um, they do a fantastic job on this album. All of them are incredibly talented and coming in and recording in the amount of time that they have to make an album that sounds, in my opinion, this good mm-hmm. is fantastic. They and I want to argue be, with you. The, the- they have to be absolute top-level musicians. The sonic quality of the record is yes. excellent. Matthew, have you, ever, have you ever been driving along? Yeah. 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it. Right. It's a nice acoustic guitar-driven song. Reminds me of something out of the 1960s. I can see that. Right. I like that uh, it's got that fun kind of a sound effects thing at the beginning where the car is trying cars to start. Like turning over. Yeah. Ostensibly, though, it's a song about having a nice morning drive. Uh, but really, it's about how society is being driven apart by things like automobiles and technology. What? And being separated by being in big apartment buildings and, and urbanization and the suburbs and all kinds of shit. Quite obviously, Harry Nielsen is an observational writer. He yes. writes about what he sees, not necessarily about his emotions or whatnot, just what he witnesses. His biggest hit, which comes up in a little bit, is quite an emotional song, but mm-hmm. it's a cover. And this song is just about going out for a drive and seeing all the faces as he drives and noticing all the people either in cars together or walking side by side outside the cars and seemingly have nothing to say to each other. And it's interesting because I would probably notice the same thing. Not sure if you noticed about me, Kyle, but I have a Mm -hmm. tough time being silent for any length of time. I have noticed that, yes. Especially in cars. I like conversation and whether it's about a road sign I just saw, or a car or some piece of scenery, I generally want to talk about it. Heather likes to sleep on long car rides, but I'm pretty sure it's just a ruse to get me to shut the fuck up <laughs> and not have to look up the city we just passed on Wikipedia and read about how it's East Texas, East Texas's third largest strawberry festival. Ooh. But you know, I need to know this shit. This is what <laughs> I live for. But musically, I don't mind the song either, but it's completely different than the last song. Oh, Yes. Nicely strummed acoustic guitars, the song is well-constructed, sounds nothing like the Beatles, and it sounds to me like more mid-70s adult contemporary, like a staple of AM radio from that time. And it's a really short song, but it's not bad. Yeah. Uh, But again, I don't like the way he ends it. But the cop-out here is the really long fade, where he repeats farther and farther. Yeah. And the only reason this works in this song, although I don't like it, is because the farther and farther line and the fade out make you feel like you're just continuing down the road into oblivion like a long car ride. And I think that's uh, that kind of works in that element. I, I kind of dig that. That's yeah. kind of cool.
So uh, Herbie Flowers on bass in this song. Yeah. Another session musician. He plays electric bass, double bass, and tuba. He's worked with tons of musicians like Elton John, David Bowie, Lou Reed. He did the bass line on Walk on the Wild Side. That doom, doom, yep. doom, I'm going to go ahead and take that out of my notes so I don't repeat. <laughs> Cat Stevens, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr. Uh, by 1980, it was estimated he had played on over 500 hit songs. Crazy. Talk about fucking bonkers that there's a session musician who's like, yeah, I've been on 500 hit songs. Nobody knows who I am. Right. I'm just a background. I have $12 to my yeah, name. Yeah, <laughs> I have $12 to my name. I've been paid for the recording sessions. That's crazy. Uh, I think Herbie Flowers deserves a lot more money. But this song to me is very much a, like you said before, it's- it's upbeat and I, I like it. It's 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 interesting. And mm-hmm. the end of the song, like you said, it blends that farther and farther and farther and farther in a way that makes it sound like farther and farther is actually saying father and father. Mm. And possibly that's another reference to Harry's father abandoning yeah, him. He's got issues. Right? I didn't realize it until just now, but you pointed out it's stretched out more and more and more. Oh yeah. He's abandoning him more and more and more. Oh, that's tough. So sad. Way to bring me down, Kyle. Right? But you know what, Matthew? Early in the morning. Uh-huh. First cover on the record. Mm-hmm. 12-bar right. blues piece. Yeah. Originally recorded by uh, Louis Jordan and his Timpani Five. Mm-hmm. In 1947, that version was a hit that reached number three on the Billboard Race Records charts. Race Records chart. Which we've talked about Seriously? before. Seriously? Awful. <laughs> Awful. Folks, that was- 50, 60, 75 years ago. We even racially divide music on the charts. Way to go, America. Fuck that. Disgraceful. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, written by Leo Hickman, Louis Jordan, and Dallas Bartley. The original song was an early example of blues that incorporated Afro-Cuban rhythms and percussion. Yeah, huge influence on Chuck Berry and James mm-hmm. Brown because it appeared in a movie called Lookout Sister. Lookout Sister. Right. Uh, Nielsen's version features just him. Mm-hmm. Him singing and him playing the organ. Very understated. And this is the point where I admit to you that upon listening to the record for the third or fourth time, I don't hate it nearly as much as I did the first time. So so I got to tell you quite honestly. Wait, so did you hate this the first time you yes, did it? And so, you're like, fuck you, Kyle? Yeah. So so what happens is I, <laughs> I write my notes chronologically. I write them as I hear the stuff. So the first okay. time I write, so the first time I listen to the record and I write my notes, I leave them the same. Even if I go back and listen to it three or four times, I don't go and revise what I already wrote because I want people to understand that there's a the possibility exists that you may hate something at the outset and find a way to like it by the end. All right, interesting. So, so my notes change gradually as this episode goes on because I do find that I did enjoy it more and more the more I listen to it. And I don't hate this song nearly as much as I did the first time. There's a lot of redeeming qualities about it. It's pretty good. And I don't want people to rush to judgment. Let let the music speak to you a second time, a third time, and who knows what you'll hear and what you'll fall in love with. One thing in the song that required a little digging is a line in Nielsen's version that says, I went to Dookie Chase to get something to eat. And the original version of that song, it's called Jenny Lou's. Mm-hmm. Dookie Chase is a wonderful little Creole restaurant in the Treme section of New Orleans that Ooh. was founded in the 1940s. You want a treat? Check out that menu. Chicken Creole, good fucking lord. I wish I would have known about this restaurant when I was going down there twice a year. I would have been 700 pounds because <laughs> I would have been eating there all the time. The menu looks outstanding. So 
Dookie oh, Chase. Good, Check it out. Good catch on that. I had I didn't even pick up on that yeah, one. Dookie Chase. Here's a little clip of what this song sounds like. Early in the morning, I ain't got nothing new, nothing but the blue. I went to Doobie Chase to get something to eat. The waitress looked at me, she said, how are you sure? I really like this song. I don't know what it is. It's something about the organ, I think, that just it really I think it's a very driving song, even though it's very slow. It has that forward progression to it, and I really like it. I also think that this song highlights the clarity of this recording. If you listen to it on a really good set of headphones, the stereo panning to this song. It's very interesting. It's very interesting and it's a little off-putting, but it once you get used to it, it sounds great. You can also hear the recording was so good. You can hear, if you listen, you can hear they didn't directly take the output from the rec- the organ. They mic'd it. So you can hear the clicks of the keys as it's playing. I like that. It's really cool. But I, I do really like this song. Me too. However, the next song, I think we're actually going to agree on this. Not my favorite on the album. Well. The Moonbeam song. Well, lost in the sauce, Kyle. Mm-hmm. I cannot, for the life of me, tell if this guy is deadly serious about his craft or as Radiohead would say, taking the piss out of it. <laughs> because while the song is inherently very pretty... It's almost too pretty, like a lullaby. Yeah. And then you have to place the lyrics on top of it, and you get this. Have you ever watched a moonbeam as it slid across your windowpane, or struggled with a bit of rain, or danced about the weather vane, or sat along a moving train and wonder where that train has been, or on a fence with bits of crap around (laughs) its bottom blown there by a windbeam? I wrote down that I love that the word crap. crap Use is used in this. So yeah, that's that's nice. So pretty. I'm floating away. I'm listening to wait on a fence with bits of crap. What the hell right. just happened? The thing and, and it took me by surprise so much that I got completely taken out of the song <laughs> and was lost. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? Like, oh man, that's kind of like the first time I listened to it. I'm like cheesy, and then <laughs> fart noise. And the second time I listened to it, I'm like, well, I mean, it's kind of pretty. And then wait, wait, what did he say? Did he say bits of crap? Bits of crap. Bits of crap? This song sounds so much like something that Roy Rogers would sing, but then you hear the word crap and you're like- Not Roy Rogers. Did Roy Rogers just say crap? Uh, Here's a little clip. Have you ever watched a moonbeam As it slid across your window Struggle with a bit of rain, or dance about the weather vane, or settle on a moving train and wonder where the train has been. It's definitely a good night song. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. The Mellotron work by Nilsson is very good. Yes. And the acoustic guitars, which are so nice on this album as a whole, played by Klaus Vorman. Oh, yeah. And Let's Juan talk about Klaus U- or John Vorman. Uribe. Klaus Vorman, 
Mm-hmm. That guy's a character. Yeah. You might recognize his name. Uh, he was the bassist for Manfred Mann from 1966 to 1969. Nice. And has been a session musician for many, many years, most famously playing on tracks like Carly Simon's You're So Vain, the entire Transformer album by Lou Reed, and on several tracks by some band called The Beatles. The Beatles, because he was like besties with them. Right. There was even talk after The Beatles broke up of a new band called The Ladders that would have been Lennon, Starr, Harrison, and Vorman replacing McCartney, but it never materialized. Wow. And he played with the Plastic Ono Band. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but he also designed the cover of Revolver, yeah. my favorite Beatles album cover of all time, for which he won a Grammy Award. And he's still he's currently 84, still super active. Pretty awesome dude. This is the kind of dude I want to hang out with. Right. On top of that, he's now mostly doing music production stuff. Uh, and in the 90s, he produced a little track by a band called Trio called Da Da Da, 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 da. which ended up being used in that Volkswagen commercial yeah, that da, everybody da, recognizes. Da. The other acoustic guitar here is played by John Uribe. He's another session musician with an incredible list of contributions, including uh, working with Jim Price, B.B. King, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and Barbra Streisand, just to name a few. So again, the session musicians on this are not just session musicians. No. They're like the cream of the crop session musicians. Yeah. He didn't get any slouches. No. As far as I could tell. Next song, Down. Down. Is this guy just sitting around with a uh, rhyming dictionary or what? Well, (laughs) you got to have soap to wash your sins away. Right. You got to have hope. It's the price you got to pay. You got to give love or your love will walk away. And you got to stay loose. It's the only way to stay. It's a weird honky tonk (laughs) song in the middle of this album. I I like this song, even though the subject matter is super, super sad. I'm pretty sure it's about bottoming out, uh, not the fun gay sex position. (laughs) Uh, where you, uh, it's where you hit rock bottom and you can't go any lower. So you have nothing left to lose in life. Ah, yes, of course. That being said, the music is almost the exact opposite of that message. It's very upbeat. It's almost, uh, uh it sounds like a theme song to a 70s sitcom. And right. It sounds like this. Well, you got See, that's one thing I absolutely love about this song Mm. are the horn licks. It is a very horny song. The horn parts remind me a lot of the Blues Brothers Rhythm and Blues Review from the Blues Brothers movie. there you go. Uh, Those parts are just similar. I love that sound. Uh, And almost all of the horns were played and arranged by the aforementioned Jim Price. Mm -hmm. But the sax was played by legendary sax player Bobby Keys. Keys played with the Stones, several of the Beatles, performed on hundreds and hundreds of recordings over the length of his long career. Sadly, he passed in 2014. We oh. got we got to tell the story about Bobby Keys. Though, okay, right? go ahead. So uh, the Bobby Keys legend, he, you said he played with the Stones for yeah. quite a while. He's very close friends with Mick Jagger, so much so that he actually served as Mick Jagger's best man on when he was married to uh, Bianca Perez uh, Moria Marcius. However, they had a falling out on September 30th, 1973. 
that nobody is quite sure why. The legend goes that Keyes filled a bathtub at their hotel with Dom Perignon champagne, which resulted in a debt that was larger than what Keyes would have been paid for a salary on the entire tour that they were on. <laughs> this made Mick Jagger very mad and angry, and he released Bobby from his contract and sent him away. In his memoir, Bobby Keyes claims he left on his own accord to curtail his growing heroin addiction uh, and for the sake of his family. I'm going with the I'm going with the champagne story. I think the champagne story sounds a lot better. However, <laughs> Keyes would do some guest spots with the Rolling Stones on their tour in 1975 and 78. Say so so he couldn't have hated him that much. It obviously wasn't that big of a deal. However, he eventually came back to the band when Keith Richard hatched a plan. To quote Keith Richards, quote, years later, the Stones were rehearsing for another tour. This was 1980-something, and I bought Bobby a ticket and said, just get your ass here. When you rehearse Brown Sugar, just sneak up and do the solo, man. <laughs> Once we did Brown Sugar, Bobby hit the solo, and then I looked at Mick like, you see what I mean, Mick? And Mick looked at me, and he says, yeah, you can't argue with that. Once he just played those few notes, there was really no question. So Mick relented and said, okay, let's get Bob back in the band. Rock and roll! Right? That's an awesome story. I love that story, and I had to squeeze it in here because I don't know when we're eventually going to talk about the Rolling Stones. We but. might. But also also playing on this track mm -hmm. is the equally legendary session drummer, Jim Keltner. Oh, yeah. Uh, his resume is also who's who, and uh, Bob Dylan once called him the best session drummer in the history of rock and roll. Yeah. So that's a big deal. Uh, Howard Sounds, who wrote uh, his biography, said that he was the, quote, leading session drummer in America. Yeah, he, he was also, everywhere. He also worked with three of the four Beatles, George, John, and Ringo. So fairly impressive resume. Uh, there's also some organ in here played by Roger Colum. He's another session musician and a founding member of the band Blue Mink. Uh, he would go on to play with a multitude of bands through the years that are so numerous I didn't want to list them all. Uh, and then also uh, Tony Terran on the trumpet. This is another person who uh, I'd never heard of Tony Terran before, but another session musician who's worked with The Fifth Dimension, The Mamas and the Papas, The Beach Boys, The Bee Gees, Ray Charles, Neil Diamond, Chicago, Nat King Cole, The Commodores, Perry Como, Bob Dylan, Ella Fitzgerald, Benny Goodman, Tony Bennett, Eartha Kitt, Peggy Lee, Madonna, Dean Martin, Elvis Presley, Bonnie Raitt, Lindy Ronstadt, Diana Ross, Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Lou Rolls, Barbara Streisand, The Tijuana Brass, The Carpenters, Tom Waits, Ricky Nelson, and so many more that I cannot list them all because I would run out of breath. Yeah, you can't. He also worked with Bob Hope in the 1940s, through which he met Desi Arnaz, and ended up being a member of the Desi Arnaz Orchestra on the television show I Love Lucy. Wow. In fact, he was the last surviving member of the original Desi Arnaz Orchestra when he passed away in 2017. That's pretty cool. Without yeah. you? Without you, Matthew. Don't get me wrong. This is a very popular song. It is a very good song. It has been covered by over 180 artists right? over the years. But damn, if it isn't one of the most overblown, schmaltziest songs of all time. I will admit it is a very schmaltzy song. This song was originally written by Badfinger, mm -hmm. who we'll be talking about in an episode coming up. Indeed. And Nilsson had heard it at a party, and he thought it was a Beatles song. Mm -hmm. And when he realized it wasn't, he decided to do a cover version of it for inclusion on this album. It actually debuted at number 99 on the Billboard Hot 100, made it to number one after 10 weeks on the chart, where it stayed for four weeks. Also topped the easy listening chart for five weeks. Yeah. Grammy nom nominated for Song of the Year, did win the Grammy for Best Male Pop Vocal, and appears at number 496 on the greatest 500 songs of all time by Rolling Stone. It is certified gold in the US, silver in the UK, and according to producer Richard Perry, it was recorded in only one take. And this is what it sounds like. 
This is not even a version of the song I'm most familiar with. Right? That version belongs to Air Supply. Fair enough. That's a pretty good cover, actually. And I I was talking about prep for this episode, and I'm like, Heather, we're doing uh, Harry Nilsson. She's like, who the, who the hell is that? And I'm like, well, hold on. I'll play something. <laughs> and I played this song, and she's just like belting it out in the car, and she's like, oh, I know this one. Of course. Of course I know this. It's, it's a good song, but it's so over the top. And speaking of over the top... Mariah Carey's version of the song would also get to number three on the charts and sell voluminous copies. The piano part was played by who? Well, piano. uh, You want to go with the piano part first? Sure, sure. Piano part uh, played by Gary Wright. Who? Yeah, that Gary Wright. Yeah, that Gary Wright. Before he was Gary Wright, uh, yeah, he played that part. Uh, <laughs> what did you want to talk about? Nothing. That's it. I just you want to more? mention that it was Gary Wright. The oh. other person on this that's very important, Paul Buckmaster, who uh, we just- Paul rec- Buckmaster's Paul on Buckmaster, this too? who we just recorded a judo chop about, in fact. <laughs> Buckmaster Flex. Buckmaster Flex, according to Randy. <laughs> Uh, did the string and French horn arrangements on this song. He's a Grammy award-winning cellist, composer, conductor, and arranger from England. Well, whoa, whoa, don't give too much around about Paul Buckmaster. People well, should subscribe to the Patreon exactly. to find out more about Paul Buckmaster. Exactly. That's all, that's all I've got to say about him. He has worked with a ton of different people, and if you want to know more, subscribe to the Patreon. Right. Nelson didn't even like this song. Right. And this lyric didn't fit him at all. He was way more acerbic with his lyrics. Yeah. And the the end result, tons of success and money from this song, is probably what ended up ruining him. Right. I believe this is a cursed song. So, Ooh. And we will get to this in a future episode, but I believe you can draw a direct line from this ballad, the oh. success of this ballad, to the death by suicide of both Peter Ham and Tom Evans of the band Badfinger, and to the slow alcoholic decline of Harry Nilsson. I have that 1980s. exact same note. Yeah. I This song, the success of this song, is what ended both of those bands' careers. I know. I said the Badfinger side of the story is even sadder than right? Nilsson's, and I think we should wait to cover that it's, in the upcoming episode. I There's would agree with that. And it is, it is incredibly cover. sad and incredibly depressing, but- at the same time, it's also an important part of music history. So we're going to go from that depressing note to coconut. To coconut. Did you find out what he felt about this song? No. So, okay. So you went from this super heavy emotional right? ballad, just dripping with sentiment to a fully fledged novelty song in the vein of a cheeseburger in paradise type thing. And I would be interested to know how he felt about it because it's a little ridiculous. Right. Originally, he was just going to sing the song straight, but his producer suggested it. He suggested he sing it in three different voices. Yeah. The song is about a woman who buys a lime and a coconut, and she drinks them both up, and winds up getting a stomachache. She calls the doctor, explains her plight, and he's clearly annoyed with the whole situation. So he tells her to take the same thing again and call him in the morning. Because she called him late at night with a complaint. <laughs> Simple enough premise. Yeah. This song got to number fucking eight <laughs> on the Billboard Hot 100. Number this, 
Eight? This song is so well known. If you have not recognized anything else on the album, if you have no clue who Harry Nilsson is and you hate rock music, you'll recognize this song. Brought up all a cooking, nutty, bought it for the time. My sister had another one, she paid it for the lime. She put the lime in the cooking, now she drank and pulled up. She put the lime in the cooking, now she drank and pulled up. She put the lime in the cooking, now she drank and pulled up. She put the lime in the cooking, now she called the doctor, woke him up and said, Doctor, ain't there nothing I can take? I said, Like you said, reached number eight on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. It stayed on the Billboard chart for 14 weeks and was ranked by Billboard as the number 66 song for 1972. It peaked at number 42 in the U.K. and number five in Canada. The 70s were unbelievable. The 70s were a time of novelty songs. It's a fun song, but eight, number eight. But in fairness, tiptoe through the tulips was also a hit. So was the Pina Colada song. Right. And what's the uh, answering machine? Yeah. Yeah. No, same guy. Yeah. Song has been featured in tons of movies. Oh, they yeah. used it they used to use it all the time on Bones. Mm-hmm. Oh God, it's so sad in <laughs> Bones too. Oh <sighs> it becomes it's a such an upbeat song and it becomes the most depressing thing in that show. But yeah, it was used uh, uh just to list a few of the movies it was used in Reservoir Dogs, The Ice Storm, Practical Magic, Dick, uh Daddy Daycare, and TV shows ER House. Uh, House MD, Lost, Parenthood, and like we said, Bones. And I guess it would register as a Calypso song, technically. Sure. Uh, And you hear it all the time in the Caribbean or regularly on Jimmy Buffett's XM station. (laughs) Uh, The bass is played expertly by Herbie Flowers, who you talked Mm -hmm. about earlier. It's just iconic. And uh, Caleb Quay on guitar. He's another studio musician best known for his work with Elton John, Mick Jagger, Pete Townshend, Paul McCartney, Holland Oates, and many, many more. Uh, surprise, another fantastic session musician. Right. The legend for this song says that originally Harry Nielsen wrote the word coconut on a matchbook during a vacation to Hawaii, <laughs> thinking it would make a great lyric for a song. When he returned home to L.A., he found the matchbook while driving down the freeway and wrote the song in his car. Hey, there you go. So. Coconut. Uh, out of that, all I can suggest to you is don't visit Hawaii. <laughs> uh, that's just a general rule. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, I've been there, but all right. Hawaii Hawaii sounds like a wonderful, magical place. Uh, the natives don't want you there. Don't visit Hawaii. That's true. Let the good times roll, Matthew. Uh, another cover. Another honky-tonk right? song. So, uh, this one is a song of the sa- uh, cover of the same song of the same name by Shirley and Lee from 1956. Mm-hmm. That version got to number 20 on the charts. I would say the song is pretty recognizable. Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, yeah. I know the song, but it's hard to say if I know this version or any of the others recorded. Uh, it's being used in a bunch of movies as well, namely uh, Apocalypse Now. I think it was in a Walmart ad a few years ago. You know, the advertising graveyard where old songs return to sell coolers and shit. <laughs> and it is a return of Honky Tonk. Yeah. I don't have much to say. It's a great song. I don't either. This is what it sounds like.
not a whole lot to say about this song. No, but I feel bad. We failed to mention the Muppets version of Coconut. That's true. And Randy pointed that out and he threatened to quit. So we figured we should probably just bring it up. Yeah, it's a pretty good cover. It is it's a good fun. cover, right? Uh, I didn't put it in my notes because uh, I didn't think anybody would be upset about it. But apparently Randy's very upset. So. Apparently Randy's very but, pissed uh, off about let that. Let the good yeah. times roll. Yeah, it's a interesting song. It's certainly on this album. I it don't is. have anything else to say about it. <laughs> Me either. However, jump into the fire. Whoa. Wait, it's so much rockier than it anything is else. so much rockier. He's yeah. kind of screaming. Yeah. It's crazy how different this song is from everything else on this album. Here's what it sounds like. A little more rock and roll. I can't get a handle on who this guy is, though. Yeah. Also, though, I did know this song as soon as I heard it. But again, I had no idea that this was Harry Nielsen. This song was used in Goodfellas. Yeah. When Ray Liotta's character, Henry Hill, notices the helicopter following him for the first time. So I knew it right away. As soon as it started, yeah. I'm like, I know this. That's such an iconic scene. And it's such a good song for that scene. Right. And it, it's a very memorable. It's also like almost seven minutes long. Oh, yeah. It's a very long song. It's almost a fifth of the entire running time. There's a huge drum solo that I'll get around to in just a second here in the middle of it. But uh, John Uribe on lead guitar, Chris Spreading on uh, rhythm guitar, and Klaus Vorman on rhythm guitar. Chris Spreading, who we haven't talked about, is, uh, you'll never guess, another session musician. What? In the early 1970s, he was one of the most sought-after session guitarists in England. He was also a producer, composer, songwriter, singer, and played other instruments besides the guitar. So he appeared all over the place. Uh, Jimmy Webb on piano, who's more known for his songwriting than his instrument playing. He has a list of platinum-selling songs, including Up, Up, and Away, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, MacArthur Park, Wichita Lineman, Worst That Could Happen, Galveston, and All I Know. Those are all good. According to BMI, his song, By the Time I Get to Phoenix, was the third most performed song in the 50 years between 1940 and 1990. The third most performed songs in a 50-year period. What? Yeah. That- Okay. Yeah. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. How do you track that? I don't know. Uh, He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1986 and the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1990. He's also the only artist to ever receive Grammy Awards for music, lyrics, and orchestration. Wow. Pretty impressive musician. Yeah. Finally, we got to talk about the drum solo here and drummer Jim Gordon. Jim is an American songwriter, musician, and percussionist who has a very, very sad story. By age 17, he was backing the Everly Brothers in the studio. Uh, His goal was actually to become the most sought-after session drummer in Los Angeles, and he did. Uh, He played on albums like the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, Gene Clark's uh, Gene Clark with the Godson Brothers, and the Birds, the Notorious Bird Brothers. 
He became so sought after and busy that it was said at the height of his career in the late 1960s, he would fly from Las Vegas to L.A. on Monday to record until Thursday and then fly back to Las Vegas to perform the evening show at Caesars Palace on Friday night. That doesn't sound crazy by modern standards. It doesn't sound that like that big of a deal. But in the 1960s, that was like, oh, my God, he's flying multiple times a week. He's using an aeroplane. He's in the air. <laughs> People were still impressed by that in the 1960s. Uh, he actually became one of the founding members of Derek and the Dominoes and played on the 1970 album, uh, 1970 double album, Layla and Other Assorted Love Songs, yep. and the accompanying U.S. and U.K. tours to support it. He continued to play with various bands through the 1970s, including Joe Cocker, Dave Mason, the Incredible Bongo Band, Frank Zappa, Helen Reddy, Johnny Rivers, Art Garfunkel, Steely Dan, and Alice Cooper. However, uh, sadly, Jim Gordon developed schizophrenia towards the late 1970s. He began to hear voices in his head, including his mother's voice, around the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, it prevented him from sleeping and compelled him to starve himself, which made it impossible for him to relax or play the drums. His physician misdiagnosed that problem and began treating him for alcohol abuse, which sadly meant that on June 3rd, 1983, Gordon attacked his 72-year-old mother with a hammer oh, and then fatally stabbed her with a butcher's knife, claiming a voice in his head told him to do it. That's a horrible story, Kyle. I know. Uh, he was sentenced on July 10th, 1984 to 16 years to life in prison. He is still serving part of the sentence at a secure California medical facility in Vacaville, California. Really? Yes. It, apparently, this cropped up over a matter of years. He went from being fairly normal to developing schizophrenia to then murdering his mother and ending up. He's still, to, to this day, the most recent record that is on Wikipedia, I believe, was 2017 or 2018. They had re-diagnosed him with schizophrenia, and he's still you know, in a medical facility under lockdown. Wow. Very, very sad story. But uh, I'm glad that we have recordings of him and and past records to to see his his brilliance as a drummer. Uh, Matthew, I'll never I'll never leave you. I want you to know. Oh, that. that's sweet. Well, I'm actually going to leave you eventually. When oh. I go home tonight. But the next song is "I'll Never Leave You." Last song in the record. Sad, slow song to wrap up the album. I'm again left befuddled mm -hmm. from the guy that got popular doing ballads, but other people's ballads. He chooses to end his record with his own ballad. Yeah. And it is only strings, a few horns, and Nielsen on piano and vocals. And it is without question my least favorite song on the record. Okay. And that may be why my first impressions of the whole album were so negative, because I was left with this really horrible taste in my mouth. It just kind of meanders about, goes nowhere, and I can't stand that this is how he would choose to end the record it is i will agree with you when you look at it as a whole this is a bad closer to the album it's about staying together with the one you love on the surface but if you dig a little deeper it's about someone who's already left and the singer can't get over it and they're still pretending that they're together but they really aren't right some uh, nights i go to sleep without you the river's far too deep without you i can't make it alone i need you by my side yeah Okay. It seems more schmaltzy than he is typically. Yeah. So it just seems like a an outlier. I definitely feel like this is one of the weaker songs on the album. Yeah. And it probably, had they just left this off, I think it would have been a better closer. But uh, here's what it sounds like.
Yeah, it's definitely a blah ending to it's this, just to not this a album. Gr- and it's not a great way to end the record. No. All in all, though, I do really like this album. And it's like I said, it's you'll recognize a couple of the hits off this album if you go listen to it. But as a whole, it's not bad. It's not the greatest album of all time. No. It's not bad. It's worth a quick listen. And you might find some new uh, stuff here that you really enjoy. Right. I do appreciate you choosing the record because I think it's an interesting bit of rock and roll history. And there's certainly more than uh, meets the eye on it. And I. I liked it. The third or fourth listen, I really, I really enjoyed the record, except for that last piece. But, uh, but don't listen to me. Yeah, people, go listen to it for yourselves, yeah. and then let us know what you think about. Form it. your own opinions. Listen to the record, and then let us know what you think. Yeah. Uh, we are at Audio Judo on Twitter, Facebook.com forward slash Audio Judo at Audio underscore Judo on Instagram. Or if you really want to get in direct contact with us, info at AudioJudo.com. Other than that, we have episodes coming up about Kiss, Bad Finger. Peter Gabriel, and many, many more. If you haven't had a chance yet, please go listen to Throughline, our new spinoff at audiojudo.com forward slash Throughline. It's really good. I've enjoyed it so far. And we will talk to you again in two weeks, everybody. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.